0: Well, as you're making your way back to your seats, I would invite you to go ahead and turn in a Bible to the Gospel of John once again. We were looking in John's Gospel last Sunday, and we'll do the same again this morning, but we have moved from chapter 1 into the beginning of chapter 2. So again, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there to John chapter 2. Or you can look on the bulletin on page 9, and it's printed there for you. But again, John chapter 2, we'll be reading verses 1 through 12 together. John writes, On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does, this, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites. the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. And they stayed there for a few days. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God, it stands forever and ever. Amen. Show of hands here if you love free samples. Anybody love free samples? Oh, good, good. We can agree on something in the church, okay? We love free samples. Costco, not too far from here down the road, right? Costco on the weekends particularly is always a good time. It's crowded, you've got to elbow your way through, but free samples typically abound. For a while, not sure if they're still doing it, I haven't been there in a while. For a while, Olive Garden was giving wine samples when you sat down. They have table wine there you could sample to see if you wanted a glass. You know, that's always a good time as well. You can maybe change tables and get more samples if you <laughs> really, really would like to. My favorite is Publix where shopping is a pleasure, by the way, okay? Um, The deli, right, where you get the the sample slice, that is a beautiful, beautiful tradition that we have created, where you get the sample of the deli meat you have selected, you know, very thin or a thick slice, whatever it might be, but they present it to you, that's always a great thing. Or ice cream parlors with the little wooden spoons, right, where you can sample it before you make a selection. And if you're like my daughter, she will take like 20 samples, very indecisive, just like her father, and so we're always trying to figure out which one is the best. But samples, particularly free samples, are the best because they help you decide what you will do. And they also give you a picture of what's to come, right? They help you decide in the moment, but they also give you a picture of what you're about to commit to or what you're about to enter into or it's a good way of just sort of wetting the appetite, right? And getting you excited for what you are about to partake of. Well, last week we took a brief look at the end of John chapter 1. If you remember, we heard Jesus promise to Nathanael and by extension to all the rest of his followers that in following Jesus and becoming one of his disciples, in living the life of the Christian, again, following after Jesus, that we would see great things, that we would see great things. In fact, Jesus said that the greatest thing that we would see is that heaven would be opened and the angels of God would be ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That was verse 51 of chapter 1. In other words, it's in Jesus that we would see the great ladder to heaven. Again, he's, he's hearkening back to, to Jacob's ladder in the Old Testament. That in Jesus, we would see the great ladder of heaven, right? We would see, in a better fashion than Led Zeppelin, the stairway to heaven, right? Where, again, heaven and earth are being reunited, and they're being reconciled. And this is happening, first, in the literal person of Jesus, as he is both fully God, as we know, and fully man. Think about our our, our call to confession earlier. He can sympathize with our weaknesses because he is fully man, understanding temptation, but without sin. And he's also fully God. So in his very person, he is bringing together heaven and earth. And of course, in the ministry of Jesus, that is also taking place, as he mends the broken and he makes all things new. And so then, it's no coincidence that right on the heels of this great promise from Jesus, we encounter then his first miracle. We encounter his first miracle, which is itself a sample. It's a sample, or it's a taste of his greater purpose. It's a snapshot, if you will, a thumbnail, so to speak, of what is to come, when heaven and earth will finally be reunited perfectly and fully, when God rescues man fully, when everything sad comes untrue at the very end of time when Christ returns. And so because of that, again, it's also no coincidence that his first miracle takes place at a wedding, at a wedding, for if you think about it, in our earthly experiences and our temporal experiences in this life, a wedding is that place where, where heaven and earth sort of come together in a way, even symbolically. Where, where, again, the love of a man and a woman is celebrated. There's something supernatural to that, something God-ordained to that, it's a picture we know of even uh, Christ and His love for the church. There's something supernatural in a wedding, where again the elements of heaven and earth are being kind of you know woven together, and because of that, it's the most joyous of occasions. It's this life-defining celebration, this life-giving celebration. A large theme in John's gospel, as we mentioned also last week, is recreation. That in Jesus, or in the gospel, God is is remaking the world. He is making all things new. Again, think about that. In Genesis 1, you hear the creation of the world. But then in Genesis 2, if you remember, it hones in on man and woman, namely Adam and Eve, specifically. Well, so too here in John the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Here again, that creation language of John 1 as it echoes Genesis 1. Well then, likewise, in John 2, the Gospel writer hones in upon a man and a woman. He hones in on the, the happenstances of God a wedding. Remember that in that way, Genesis, again, the beginning of Scripture, opens with a a wedding of sorts in Eden. Adam and Eve coming together, Adam and Eve being created, right? There's this this ceremonial uh, event happening, Adam and Eve. And then how does the Scripture end? How does Revelation end? Do you remember chapter 19? There's the wedding supper of the Lamb. So Scripture begins with a wedding, so to speak. Scripture ends with a wedding in Revelation 19. And then here, in the pinnacle of redemptive history, in in the coming of Christ, in the Gospel of John, we have then, at the beginning of Christ's ministry, a wedding. Entirely fitting that Jesus, again, would begin his ministry here in this most joyous and symbolic of occasions, the consummate social celebration, a wedding, a wedding. There's so many human emotions there that are at play. Joy, you know, the, the, the highest of joys, perhaps maybe even some bittersweetness on the part of the parents, right, as they have to give the child away. It's a bittersweet emotion. There's, of course, stress also and anxiety at weddings. Isn't that true? We can admit that. It was perhaps stressful to plan your wedding. A lot goes into it, a lot of details, right, particularly for the bride, okay? My biggest stress as the groom I've mentioned uh, previously was just not, not losing the tuxedo. That was like the biggest thing, right? Do not lose the tuxedo. It costs a lot to rent this sucker, right? You got to turn it back in, you know, on time. Don't lose it, all right? Of course, it's our... Great theologian, Jerry Seinfeld, who tells us that the tuxedo must have been invented by a woman. Have you heard that before? The tuxedo must have been invented by a woman. Ah, they're all the same. Might as well dress them the same, right? All guys the same. Let's just dress them the same, right? Um, It's also, Seinfeld says, a fail-safe in case the, the groom just backs out and doesn't want to be there, right? Because everybody just shifts one place over, all right? And then the wedding can continue. He also asks, why do they call him the best man? Right? If she's marrying the groom, right? it should be the groom and then a pretty good man. That's how we should do it. Okay? So you've heard all these things potentially before, but this is Seinfeld helping us understand also potentially the gospel of John. But again, here, more importantly, we have on the third day, did you notice that? On the third day, there's some symbolism there. You have a wedding. And you're also finding yourself here, as we read, in Cana of Galilee, where Jesus has been since chapter 1. He's been in Galilee, and he's been in Cana, which is a city about nine miles from his hometown, about nine miles from Nazareth, which explains the presence of his friends and family, specifically his mother remember nathaniel's comments in chapter 1 can anything good come from nazareth about 9 miles away well now here in cana you have jesus with his family and friends again potentially because of the proximity of locations but what's interesting as well is think about how jesus tells nathaniel in chapter 1 you will see greater things than these and then later in the gospel of john in chapter 21 nathaniel once again resurfaces and he's known as nathaniel of Cana in Galilee. Is this even Nathaniel's own wedding? Maybe. Maybe. Wouldn't that be just like God to do something right off the bat like that? Who knows? And either way, though, for our sake today, I want us to see three things here. Three things that stand out to me in this passage, and hopefully to you as well. We see the compassion of Jesus, the mission, Of Jesus and we see his response or our response rather we see the mission of Jesus the compassion of Jesus and we see our response so let's just consider those briefly notice the compassion of Jesus here just in this story as a whole and I say that because we have this uh, this tendency if we're honest to oftentimes over spiritualize scripture where we kind of isolate these stories and if we're honest we believe they're true But in our minds, we kind of relegate them to the the category of legend or the category of fable. And we can underappreciate that these were actually real people living real lives. These are real people who threw a real wedding. Again, think about your own wedding or think about the ones you've been to. These are real people throwing a real wedding in a culture Where weddings are even bigger deals than they are today, bigger deals than they are today, and would often involve the entire village, the entire you know town, and would go on for days. It wasn't just like a, a banquet hall and a reception hall or a sanctuary and a fellowship hall. This was the whole town. This was the whole village. And the wedding would often go on for days or for a week. And again, that might seem like a simple detail, but it's important for us to remember that these you know, aren't just extras, you know, actors, or this is not just a, um, like a, a faux charity event where the you know, professional athlete shows up and takes some pictures on behalf of the charity to make things look all good. This is a real wedding. A real wedding with real people who are experiencing here in this moment a mortifying little development. In a culture where hospitality is the highest of virtues, at their very moment of celebration and joy, they're about to have this social faux pas occur. They run out of why And they run out of refreshments, again, on the most meaningful event or party of their life. And this is exactly why Mary comes. Mary, a good Jewish mother. <laughs> Mary, a good Hebrew mother, comes to Jesus and she asks him to intervene. Perhaps she's calling to mind the angelic prophecy at his birth or the amazing things that she would have undoubtedly observed over the years as he grew up. But she's coming to him, basically, and it's as if she's saying, Jesus, before you go about saving the world, before you go about saving the world, first, save this couple. First, save this party, save this couple from embarrassment. And this is fascinating to me, just fascinating on, on so many levels. And it's fascinating because, first off, it reminds us that our gospel responsibilities, so think about this, for us as Christians, we're not Christ, of course, we don't have this miraculous power, but for us as Christians, for those who, who bear his name, who have been made disciples of Of his. This is a great reminder in this action of Jesus that our gospel responsibilities always begin locally. They always begin with what is right in front of us or exactly where God has placed us. Think about that. How easy is it for us to set out, even with good intentions, to try to change the world? Or how easy is it for us to have this desire to change the world before we even attempt or have tried to change our neighborhood, right? Or our street. Or whatever it is that God has put right in front of us. How easy is it for us to strive for a radical faith that is world-changing, Instead of recognizing the ordinary faith that God has called us to and placed before us right again every day. Jesus could have said, woman, my time has not yet come, which he does, because in a few moments or, you know, days, years, I'm going to go ahead and save the world, and all this will be forgotten, this little detail of of a wedding, but he doesn't. He doesn't. By the way, the term woman there is not a disrespectful comment on his part. Right? If you called your mother a woman, that might not go well for you. right? This is actually the same phrase, the exact same phrase that Jesus uses on the cross. When he talks to John and says to care for his mother. So it's not this disrespectful phrase. But again, he could have easily said, don't worry, I'm going to save the world later but even in his goal of world salvation he doesn't lose sight of the ordinary that is right in front of him and i think that's destructive for us i really do i really do cuz think about how many churches even we attempt to go out and change the world and that's fine but in doing so we lose sight of the neighborhood right in front of us or we lose sight of the community right in front of us or the relationships right in front of us and the great irony is that if every church stopped trying to change the world and instead tried to change their community, then actually, by way of extension, the world would be changed. Isn't that true? But because we set out with these grandiose, sometimes, visions, we lose sight of what is right in front of us. And yet we don't see this with Jesus. Though the cross lies ahead for him, though the... You know, the cataclysmic redemption of the world lies in front of him. He has time. He has time here for this young couple right in front of him. He has time and compassion for the average Joe. Again, he's the Messiah, but he doesn't lose sight of what is right in front of him here in this scenario. And again, it's instructive for us. That God cares about our spiritual well-being. He cares, of course, about our spiritual destiny. But it's not just pie-in-the-sky religion. He cares about the stuff in our actual daily lives as well. The curveballs are thrown our way. Again, this is a great curveball for this couple. This is a, a high point of stress and anxiety and worry and, you know, and, and losing a face and an embarrassment. And yet God cares. He cares enough to intervene and the same thing is true for us as well. Whatever is happening in your life today, whatever curveball is thrown your way, whatever you expected that didn't happen, or whatever scenario which comes along and again potentially just causes you this, this point where, oh, my reputation is at stake or something again is occurring, we know that God sees and he hears and he cares. And he might not intervene in this exact way. He might not, you know, But we know, biblically speaking, he will turn our water into wine. And he will do that in his time, and he will do it in his way, but he hasn't lost sight of us wherever we are found. And so we see here a great compassion, a common compassion, a local compassion, if you will, on the part of Jesus, which I think is instructive for us as well. But We do also see here the larger mission of Jesus, if Jesus here saves this newly married couple from the social embarrassment of lack of wine, he is, though, at the same moment, as we know, launching his ministry or his mission to save Israel and the rest of the world, not from embarrassment, per se, but he's launching his ministry to save Israel to save the rest of the world, from this do-it-yourself religion. Notice that in the details here. He's at a wedding, which is, again, no coincidence as we think of the Bible sort of thematically and symbolically. But it's also no coincidence that the vehicle that God uses here to display his miracle were the water basins mentioned here. The water basins used for purification rites in Judaism. It's a great symbol here of what Judaism in the day of Christ had devolved into. The Pharisees and the religious leaders and those at the height of Israelite society had taken God's revelation and his relationship and his covenant and his law, specifically the law, and they had added rules and regulations and do-it-yourself sort of details around it in a way where they lost sight of the God who actually stood behind those things to begin with. And we see this later in Christ's ministry. It's summed up using these very same kind of water basins, when if you remember, the Pharisees encounter Christ and they ask him, why is it that we, that is the Pharisees, go to all this trouble to purify and wash our hands, and even John the Baptist's disciples do so, but you don't. They ask Christ, why don't you and your disciples do the same? In other words, why don't you subscribe to this tacked on additional regulation that we have added, which keeps you in good standing socially, and keeps you in good standing culturally. Why don't you do that? If you remember, Christ's response was sort of parabolic, but it also involved wine, and he says you can't put new wine into old wineskins. In other words, the mission that Christ brings, the mission of the gospel goes beyond our preconceived categories. And if we think of the gospel, if we think of it in terms of religion, what happens? We miss the point. We miss the point, and we actually sort of strip it of its power. If we think of the gospel in terms of religion, we miss the point. If we think of it as just another religious device... We'll never see it for what it is. For at the heart, what is religion? Religion is built around the premise of things that we can do for God that then in turn he would repay us with what we're looking for. The gospel, on the other hand, is the opposite. It's not what we can do for God, which will always fall short, but it's the announcement, the declaration, the the throw, throw a party and let's turn water to wine announcement. That God has done for us what we can never do for ourselves. Never do for ourselves. And again, the Pharisees and the religious leaders of his day had taken a great gift, namely the right to become his children, his promises, all of these things, and they turned it into something that they themselves must pay for, that they themselves can own and have ownership of. And they, t- they turn it into a burden. They turned it into a burden instead of a blessing. And Christ here comes to show the blessing far as the curse is found. And again, this is instructive to us today because just like we should embody the compassion of Jesus, the common compassion, the local compassion, as we present Christianity, we must do it the same way that Christ does. That we do not present it as religion, but again, the resounding announcement or freedom from do-it-yourself religion, from the delusion that we could take a little bit of water, you know, and a little bit of elbow grease and somehow work ourselves into right standing with God. Christ here comes and he takes those water basins, which symbolize that very thing, that very effort or, or way of thinking, and he transforms them. He transforms them. And he makes this great announcement, this great announcement that in the gospel, we must be as transformed fundamentally from the outside as water here is being fundamentally transformed from the outside through the word of Christ into wine. And only that happens through the grace of God. Not through us working ourselves up, not through us, you know, uh, checking all the boxes, but only through the living and abiding, again, word of God. And a great picture is given here between these things in that moment. Because how is religion summed up? Well, it's summed up by those water basins. And Think about that. Every person comes with their grubby hands and puts them in the water and man, that doesn't sound very appealing to me. Versus the gospel, what's the gospel here? It's about 150 gallons of the choicest wine, right? It's the finest vintage here. that the, even, the, even the master of ceremonies is blown away. Blown away, right? What a great picture between religion and gospel. Religion, our dirty hands trying to tell us that we're something else, trying to, you know, enough water and we will be... No, in the gospel, which is this, the choicest of vintage wine. Again, what a picture that God gives us here between religion and gospel. So we see the compassion of Jesus, the mission of Jesus, both of which should be ours as well. And then finally here, lastly, we do see one more thing. We see what should be our response to Jesus. And it's very, very basic, <laughs> but challenging. And the response that we see to Jesus is right there in verse 5. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. You see, this is the appropriate response to the God whose compassion knows no limits. This is the appropriate response to God who has graciously transformed us, again, just like he transformed water to wine. He transformed us from orphans to children, from enemies to to friends, from darkness to light. And again, then, this is the appropriate response. Again, the only response to the groom of heaven response. When God shows himself to be that good and kind and loving and gracious, think about how he's demonstrated that to us on the cross, in the empty tomb. When he's, when he's demonstrated to us such love and such grace and such compassion, that in doing so, he also shows himself to be worthy of our following and he shows himself to be worthy of our trust and devotion. Or he, he, he shows himself to be worthy then of us following in obedience and doing then whatever he commands or whatever he tells us to do. But the two go together. What they are about to see in the miracle shows that he is one worthy of following. And the same thing is true for us. Once we consider what God has done for us, In the gospel, once we consider the transformation that has occurred in our own lives, again, because of his grace, then the the desire to follow him now naturally flows out of that. And that's a, a reminder and an encouragement for us because we now, as his followers, find ourselves in the continued journey of faith. He has saved us just like he turned the water into wine in that moment. But now it's the walking after him that's hard. Now it's the following after him in faith that is hard. It's, it's, the, it's the life after the miracle, if you will. Think about how that's true even in the Old Testament. God leads his people out of Egypt in the most miraculous of fashion. He parts the Red Sea. They walk on dry land. But what happens after the exodus? the wilderness, where they have to continue to follow after him and continue to trust him and continue to do whatever he tells them to do, even when the things he tells them to do are countercultural or sometimes are against what they think in the moment would be the right thing to do, you know, like if they were in charge. But it's a faith that is built upon what God has already shown himself to be in his grace. Proven himself worthy of devotion, proven himself worthy of our trust. It's what the author and pastor Eugene Peterson titles his book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. So the question then for all of us as we close is what is the Lord calling you to do? Do whatever he tells you, Mary says to the servants. Well, what is it? Again, under the authority of Scripture, that's important, right? God is not calling you to do something outside of the bounds of his word, outside of the bounds of his revelation. But under the authority of his word, under the authority, again, of Scripture, and the conviction of the Holy Spirit, what is it that the Lord is calling you to do? And what should be our response? Well, the Lord might be telling you to put away old habits and vices which drag you down. Or the Lord might be telling you to reach out to the person who wronged you and seek reconciliation. The Lord might be calling you to give generously or sacrificially to his kingdom with your time or your talent or your treasures. Jesus is calling all of us to lay aside every weight and hindrance and the sin which so easily entangles and to run with perseverance the race marked out for us. What is it, again, in your specific journey of faith, in your specific life and context that the Lord is calling you to? Well, may this passage be our reminder that the compassion of Jesus and the mission of of Jesus can assure you that following him in obedience is worth it. That following him in obedience is worth it. And just like Jesus was with those newlyweds in their moment of struggle, he will be with you as well. Wherever he places you. Wherever he calls you. And whatever, even in his calling of you, whatever curveball, again, comes along and wants to derail the plans he's with you. He's with you, and he sees you, and he hasn't forgotten you, and he loves you. And because of his grace that we see here, we know that we are never alone, never alone, but that he is with us always, his compassion, his mission, and again, our response to follow after him in faith, wherever he calls. Let's pray together. Oh God, we do thank you for this reminder through story. We thank you that you are the God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And just like this couple was not forgotten by you or beneath you, just like their need was not too far below you, the God of the universe, too petty, Too circumstantial, too temporal. We recognize that the same is true for us that you see us, you know us, you love us, that you meet our every need in your time and in your way. Again, because we're yours, because we have been called from darkness to light, because we have been transformed like that water to wine again from enemies to your children so God bless us afresh we ask and help us we pray to follow after you in whatever you call us to do in Christ's name we ask these things Amen what a moment